Hey, good morning, everyone. For many people, the last two weeks have been an emotional whirlwind. All the pent-up anxiety about the presidential election, the COVID crisis, all the rest that's been building up over the past few months finally hit its zenith, and it's been uncomfortable. It reminded me that as a kid growing up in southern Indiana, we were sort of a stone's throw away from the Wabash River. The Wabash is normally a beautiful mid-sized river, great for boating and fishing and swimming, picnics, things like that. But once a year, the skies would like open up and dump four, five, six inches of water into the Wabash, starting up north by West Lafayette near Purdue University. And then all that water builds up as it heads south towards the Ohio River until somewhere downstream that beautiful calm river turns nasty, jumps its banks and spreads destruction and mayhem all around. And as long as the river stays within its banks, everything's fine. But when it floods, look out because people don't appreciate the power of the water and they quite literally can get swept away. I think our emotional currents often act the same way. I mean, joy and sadness, anger, longing, all those human emotions are good and, and needed. God made us with our feelings and emotions. We're not designed to be stoic zombies. Though over the centuries, uh, some uh, Christian movements have denigrated our emotional life. I think scripture shows us though how important our emotions are. Um, even though our emotions are damaged by sin, just like everything else. Uh, in the Gospels, we see Jesus experience the whole range of emotions, you know. So our emotions are kind of what adds spice to life, help us to appreciate things like beauty and wholeness and, of course, love. But our emotions can also be a destructive force when they jump the banks. If they overwhelm everything else, if they're not tempered by reason, or if they begin to dictate the way we respond to other people. And I'm afraid that's been kind of the case over the last two weeks. We're sort of in this emotional flood zone. And I have to tell you, I've been so disappointed by many of the emails I've received and the social media posts I've seen, not from people out there in the world, but from people within our own church family. Some of the most hateful things said about others. And if I were to believe what people have been saying, then I would have to conclude that, that just about half of the people in our country are absolutely terrible, awful, evil human beings. Half the country. Because they voted a different way. They must be absolutely terrible, awful, evil human beings. Half the people must be stupid redneck racists who just want to bring back slavery. And half the people must be socialist sympathizers who secretly hate America and want to destroy everything that it stands for. And so we demonize just about half of the people in our country, think they're all stupid dupes for one reason or another. That's what the far left thinks of conservatives and that's what the far right thinks of progressives. And what's worse is that some folks then take it even further and say, I can't be around those other people who disagree with me. And that's in the church. That's in the church. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about our church. And that just breaks my heart. Because if that's true, that we're going to divide up about who we can or cannot have fellowship with, then as a church, we might as well just pull the plug and turn the lights out because it means we have not learned one thing about Jesus. We have not made one single step of progress as his disciples. We have failed completely in modeling his life and teachings and his commands to love one another or to love our enemies. We have failed completely in the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus has entrusted to us. We are not walking in the Spirit. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that Christ came to break down the dividing walls of hostility between human groups. And here we are erecting those walls again in our own kind of righteous indignation. I am sorry to say this, but prejudice is alive and well in our congregation. Prejudice is alive and well. And we've got to face it head on. Our passage today from Acts chapter 10 shows us exactly how we can do just that. Prejudice. Prejudice simply means to prejudge, to prejudge sort of in a negative way. Without actually knowing, you evaluate another person's worth or value based on a perceived characteristic of the group that you believe they belong to. Prejudice just lumps everybody together, labels them all with a common characteristic. Uh, you know, in a comical way, you might say uh, all Mets fans are eternal optimists. Or, you know, if you're from Nashville, you must love country music. Those are stereotypes. They're prejudiced beliefs that are not based on facts, just a person's own impressions. But those are fairly benign. There's really no harm done. But prejudice can go much, much deeper than that and become much more hurtful and destructive. In fact, racism in all its forms is really just a subset of prejudice. Racism is a particularly nasty expression of prejudice because an entire race is judged and then denigrated solely on the color of their skin or some physical characteristic. For example, in 1994, in the African country of Rwanda, a genocide took place by the Hutu people against the Tutsi people, two tribal groups who had lived alongside each other in the same neighborhoods uh, for decades and decades. In just three months, about 800,000 Tutsis were slaughtered, mainly by machete. I visited Rwanda a few years ago, saw the genocide memorials, and the stacks and stacks and stacks of human bones that commemorate the massacre. It was very, very hard to see. I was told that the only physical difference between the Hutus and the Tutsis had to do with the shape of the nose. That's it. I mean, I couldn't tell any difference, but if you grew up in that culture, you knew. And if your nose had the Tutsi shape, you were called a cockroach and you needed to be exterminated. A deeply held prejudice is usually behind the ugliest evils of our world. So Acts 10, how is this gonna help us with prejudice? Well, remember that the book of Acts tells the story of the growth of the early church after Jesus' death and resurrection. In chapter one, verse eight, the resurrected Jesus gives his disciples what you might call their marching orders. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is sending the disciples, they're now called apostles, the word apostles means sent ones, so he's sending apostles to out to share the good news of God's forgiveness in sort of expanding concentric circles of geography. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The rest of the book of Acts tells us how that happened. Jerusalem in Judea, that was home territory for the apostles. It's where the gospel message quickly caught fire with Pentecost, you know, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, thousands of people putting their faith in Christ. But not without the problems of prejudice. Two weeks ago, I spoke on Acts 5, how a racial division had emerged between the Hebrew-speaking Jewish believers who were natives of Israel and the Greek-speaking Jewish believers who came from countries outside of Israel. 
that wall of division and prejudice had to be addressed or the church was going to flounder. Then in chapter 8, the Apostle Philip takes the gospel to the next concentric ring, out to Samaria. Again, there was an issue of prejudice because though the Samaritans were ancient cousins of the Jews, there was centuries of bad blood between them. Racial hatreds that sparked war between the Jews and the Samaritans several times in their past. And again, it took the Holy Spirit coming upon them with power so that they could then be welcomed into Christ's family. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now the fourth ring of expansion to the non-Jewish world of the Gentiles, those who were not part of God's covenant community, those who did not share in any way in the sacred history of Israel and the Jewish people. That's what we see happening in chapter 10. It's a long chapter. I don't have time to go over the whole story, so let me encourage you to read the whole of chapter 10 for yourself. I'm just going to do kind of the Spark Notes version this morning. Well, it starts by introducing us to a man named Cornelius. And right away, Cornelius has two strikes against him. First, he's a Gentile, and Jewish law forbid contact between Jews and Gentiles. They were considered to be religiously unclean, and if you as a Jewish person was to hang around one of them, their invisible, unholy cooties would get transferred to you, and then you would be unclean. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs behind their backs, and not in a nice way. There was strike one. Strike two, he was a soldier in the Roman army. He's one of the oppressors. He's part of the occupying army, one of those who enforced Roman rule over Israel that kept the Roman boot on their necks of the Jewish people. And not just a soldier, he's a centurion. He's a company commander, someone who worked his way up from being an ordinary foot soldier by his extraordinary devotion. We're even told the name of his unit, the Italian Regiment, well known as one of the backbone brigades of the Roman army. And so racially and politically and militarily, he is the very definition of the enemy. No Jew in their right mind would have anything to do with a guy like that. At least, that's what prejudice would say. But Cornelius didn't fit the stereotype. He didn't fit the mold because we're also told that he was a sincere seeker after God. And that he treated the Jews with respect and generosity. His whole family was that way. And he used his position to do as much good as possible. He knows just a little bit about God, but he doesn't know the full story. But his faith-filled prayers kind of get God's attention. So God leads him, God draws him, God sends him an angelic messenger that tells him to get in touch with a man named Simon Peter. The angel even gets so specific, gives Cornelius the address where Peter is staying. Cornelius follows through, sends the envoys to connect with Peter. Well, at the same time, Peter is having some wild dreams of his own. While waiting for lunch to be served, Peter falls into a trance, dreams about food. I mean, he must have really been hungry. He sees this tablecloth coming down from heaven. Within the tablecloth is a picnic spread of all different kinds of food. Must have been kind of an early version of Uber Eats. But what is served is food that the Jews were forbidden to eat according to their religious dietary laws about what was kosher, what wasn't. In the dream, Peter is told to go ahead and eat what is placed before him. But he balks. He, he doesn't want to defile himself. He's still operating on the old operating system of the Jewish law that told him that all the stuff was bad and eating any of it would be an ungodly thing. Now, it's not that the Jewish law was wrong or passe. 
Peter just hasn't yet fully understood how Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law so that those ceremonial laws were no longer in force. You see, there were different kinds of law in the Old Testament. There was moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law. The moral law, the law about personal, moral, ethical, sexual behavior, the moral law, Jesus said, would never change. But the ceremonial laws, the laws about religious ritual, that did change. That part of the law was no longer necessary. In the book of Galatians, Paul says that that part of the law was only a shadow of the real thing. And when the real thing came, the shadow was no longer needed. Jesus taught the disciples the exact same thing in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, where he declared all foods were clean. But Peter is still running on that old operating system. He can't quite break himself out of his cultural habits. It's so deeply ingrained within him. I mean, it's how he's lived all his life. So the voice of the angel says to him in verse 15, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And because Peter is so thick-headed, this happens three times. God sends the dream three times. As the dream ends, the envoys from Cornelius arrive, and they relate to Peter the God-sent message given to Cornelius. Well, Peter, sharp enough to put two and two together, realizes his dream, Cornelius' visitation, they're all connected, so he agrees to go with them. And I'm going to start reading in verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Well, Cornelius then recounts his dream and the way God directed him to seek out Peter. And Peter senses authenticity in Cornelius. The guy's the real deal. I mean, he had the right to be a little skeptical. The last centurion Peter encountered was the officer in charge of the crucifixion detail that tortured and killed Jesus. So uh, Peter had good reason to be skeptical. He actually had good reason to be prejudiced. Good reason not to go to Cornelius' house in the first place. But he does what the Spirit told him to do. He overcomes his prejudice and goes to the home of someone who should be his most hated enemy, a Gentile and an officer in the Roman army. And in doing so, Peter has this epiphany. God finally penetrates his thick skull. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. This is a revelation to him that God is the God of all people, all nations, all ethnic groups. Everyone is the same before him. Peter then goes on to give kind of a rapid fire summary of the gospel to Cornelius and the whole family. And then this happens in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished 
that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. For they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. And they received, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, at each of these concentric circles of growth, there was a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit a special outpouring of the tongues that validated what had just happened. And we see that here. God adds this special, unusual anointing, his blessing to what Peter and Cornelius have done. We cannot overestimate how important a turning point this moment is in the story of the church. Without this moment, the followers of Christ would have remained a small sect just within the larger circle of Judaism. Without this moment, the call of Christ would never have stepped out of an exclusively Jewish orb and become a faith for all peoples. Without this moment, you and I would never have been invited into God's grace through the message of the gospel. Peter had to overcome his prejudice against Gentiles in order for this moment to happen. And these two men, who should have been mortal enemies, found themselves to be brothers in Christ. These two men who were far more divided than Democrats and Republicans. And it only happened as Peter was able to overcome his prejudice. He had to have a change in his own heart so that he could accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. Listen again to his humility in his voice in verse 34. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So what can we glean from this example? How is it that we can get beyond our own prejudice? Well, here are a couple of things. First of all, it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. The roots of prejudice run so deep in this story that God had to give a wake-up call to both Cornelius and Peter. Both of them needed a special visitation from God's messengers because God was kind of working this out from both ends. Both Cornelius and Paul needed the Holy Spirit to be at work in their situation. So the Spirit has to be in this reconciliation process from the very beginning. This is not just about having better conflict management skills. This is a spiritual healing that needs to take place in the church because we've got our priorities all mixed up. Somehow we have enmeshed our faith with our politics in an unhealthy and unbiblical way. And it's going to take a work of the Holy Spirit to untangle that mess. We need to invite the Holy Spirit into our attitudes and to perhaps challenge some of our most cherished beliefs that may not actually be from God. And are you willing to do that in your life? Are you willing to invite the Holy Spirit into your heart to examine your most cherished beliefs? Because that leads to the second step. Peter particularly had to be open to what the Spirit was saying. He had to be open to, and then open to changing the way that he was thinking. It's one thing to listen. It's another thing to actually listen so that you change. Peter had to be open to thinking in new ways that flipped the script from what he was used to. He had grown up with this, this way of believing, and he had to change it. And that requires some deep humility. Not arrogance, not smugness, but the humility to admit that his thinking was off base. Are you even open to the Spirit in that way? Are you open to considering that your thinking may not be 100% correct? 
that you might just be a little bit wrong, that you could be 5% wrong, and the other person on the other side of the divide, they might be at least 5% right, or 10%. Could it be possible that not all Trump supporters are redneck racists? Could it be possible that not all Biden supporters are socialists who hate America? Are you willing to change the way you're thinking? Are you willing to examine the prejudice that just might be at work in your heart? Folks, we can't give in to the stereotypes that we're being fed by the social media. The reasons why people pick their candidates are usually very complex. And we don't seem to be willing to listen and kind of sort all that out. We're just, it's just easier to label people, to become disgusted by them, become kind of sanctimonious about our own righteous choice, and then cut them out of our lives. And that's just not the Jesus way. Otherwise, he never would have dined with Zacchaeus, you know, that chief tax collector, that Roman collaborator, that Jewish traitor. Is it even remotely possible for you to believe that a little more or less than half of the people in our country who think you're dead wrong politically, to believe that they're actually very kind and caring and informed and empathetic and hardworking patriotic people? Can you accept that possibility that though they disagree with you politically, that they are actually caring patriotic people? You see, it's not about uh, sides. It's about cubes. Cubes. I got this illustration from Langdon Palmer, who was, some of you may remember, when he, he was a seminary intern here many years ago. He's now the pastor of the Leverington Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He said that our tendency is to look at things as either good or bad, to see a line in the sand that divides. But that's like looking at a cube just straight on, straight on. You only see one side. The other sides don't actually exist. But if you tilt the cube a little bit, you can actually see three sides of a time, uh, at a time. And if you turn it a bit, you'll actually begin to be able to see that there are six sides. What if there were six major issues going on in this past election? Six, six issues that kind of inflame our prejudice. Uh, listen to these six statements and try not to get offended. Uh, side one says, the rule of law must be upheld. We need law and order. We need to follow the Constitution, even if the result is something that you don't like. Side two says, there's still racism in this country and things have to change. Sometimes you have to get loud enough to make people feel uncomfortable enough so that change can happen. Side three, we want the smallest government possible because the bigger it is, the more power it has and the more corrupt it becomes because absolute power corrupts absolutely. Side four says, we should all be willing to pitch in through our taxes and have a big enough government so that the most vulnerable and the most needy have the basic life necessities they need and a greater opportunity to succeed. We should be a nation of mercy and compassion. Side five says we should maximize freedom, reduce regulations so that those who work hard, who come up with brilliant solutions, they're rewarded more than those who don't. Freedom of speech and all the other bills of rights are what are most important. What we need is a quality of opportunity not a quality of outcomes because we'll never have a quality of outcomes because we're all different. Side six says we need government oversight and policies and regulations on large corporations, wealthy individuals to protect the smaller and the weaker and the environment because absolute power corrupts and the weak and the environment need to be protected from that kind of corruption. Now, how many of those six would you agree with? Which ones are most important to you? 
because that's actually where the difference comes in and how we might prioritize those six statements. If we were able to sit down and calmly talk about what they are, uh, about what you're really concerned about, what is it you most want to see in our country? Don't you think that actually like 90% of our fellow Americans, we all want liberty and justice for all? Don't you believe that like 90% of our fellow Americans, they want everybody in America to have freedom and opportunity and fairness? That's the most people pretty much want the same things at their core. I think most people would actually do agree on what they want to see, but then they kind of disagree on the priorities and how to get it done. The cube analogy breaks down because it could be there are 36 issues or 106. The point is, is to begin to look at it that, that I am not on the other side of you, but I am looking at the cube differently than you are. I need to walk over to the other side and see it from your point of view. We may not come to agreement, but we may come to a better understanding. So the third step is that you have to be willing to walk across the room. You have to be willing to look at the cube from the other side, be willing to walk across the room to build a bridge of understanding with someone whom you might deeply disagree. Walking across the room, not wagging a finger, but vulnerable, willing to listen. Walking across the room to engage is not the same thing as marching across the room to yell. Maybe it's good that we're not having large family gatherings at Thanksgiving this year. They cancel out a lot of hostile arguments. <coughs> Excuse me. Walking across the room to meet the other person on their side. It is such a powerful way to begin reconciliation. Look what happened when Peter crossed the threshold into Cornelius' home. We're told Cornelius fell at his feet in reverence. I mean, try to grasp the intensity of what happens there. It's easy to skip over this Roman soldier, this respected leader of men, is so overwhelmed with emotion that Peter has responded to his invitation that he throws himself down on the floor at Peter's feet. I mean, that just doesn't happen every day, even to Peter. He had to be shocked by this intense display of emotion, but it's good emotion. But that's how much the Holy Spirit had been working in Cornelius' heart. Now, don't expect that response if you make the first move towards reconciliation with someone whom you perceive to be on the other side of the cube. You can't expect people to do that necessarily. They're going to be skeptical. They're going to be reluctant, reserved, even antagonistic at first. They're going to wonder what game you're playing. And that's why it really takes a long-term commitment, long-term exposure. We didn't get into this mess overnight, and we can't expect for understanding to happen overnight either. It will take time. What was really needed is long-term exposure to authenticity. I was pretty disturbed last week, but that passed, because I do believe in the reconciling power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our emotionally challenged lives. I also remembered what I learned in Rwanda about what happened after the genocide was stopped. What a broken, bleeding and divided nation, the death, the hurt, the anger, and the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of Hutus who participated in the massacre. They couldn't put them all in jail. The only way they were able to go forward as a nation was through forgiveness and reconciliation. The only way forward for Rwanda was actually the gospel of Jesus Christ. Neighbors had to forgive neighbors who had mutilated and murdered their family members. Forgiveness was their only option. I remember we met with one Tutsi man who had both his hands 
chopped off during the genocide by, the Hutu, by a Hutu neighbor. They still lived next to each other. The man who had chopped off his hands was actually sitting right next to him as he spoke to us. And now he helped the man he had mutilated with his daily chores, fed him, cared for him. They were now like brothers. And they were, they were brothers in Christ. And that kind of forgiveness and reconciliation is nothing short of miraculous. It can only happen through the spirit of Jesus. And why not here? Could we really love our enemies like that? Like how Jesus commanded? Can we be open and responsive to the Holy Spirit in our circumstances? Can we live you know, in a cube world and be the one who walks across the room, extends the hand of grace, tries to see the other side. As brothers and sisters in Christ, let's love each other well. Lord, we need you to send your Holy Spirit to do a work of renewal and reconciliation in all of our hearts. Lord, help us to be open to what your Spirit might do. Help us to be open to at least examining what ideas we have in our own minds that are prejudicial and just not true. And help us to be what the church should be, Lord, that reconciling community of those who are willing to walk across the room and extend a hand of uh, fellowship, a hand of forgiveness, a hand of new beginning, Lord. Give us that courage that we might bring healing, not just to our church, but to our community and to our whole nation, Lord. We need your work to, to make that happen. So we thank you now for this challenge today in Christ's name. Amen.